Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Monday. Yesterday I was in Newark taking my son to the airport back to Yeshiva in Israel. Um, but today I'm going to do something that's interesting. I'm going to do uh, somebody I've thought about for a while, never wanted to do because it's too big of a parsha. That's W. C. Hoffman, but Rabbi Eliezer Kung from Lakewood was emailing me. <clears throat> He's interested in it, and along with a lot of other unusual um, mafarshim, I must say, I was impressed uh, with his uh, extensive knowledge of the literature of biblical commentary. Let's put it that way, in a very extreme uh, wide sense. Uh, <clears throat> I was a chinuch for many years, he says. Anyway, turns so. Um, and it happened to be, don't ask me why, it just came through my head the other day, something about W.C. Hoffman. I, I said, nah, but since he brought it up, I, excuse me, I put two and two together, and that is what I undertook to do. I want to say, therefore, that today's podcast is being sponsored by Rebel Yezer Conan family. <coughs> uh, to tell you the truth, we're doing it with Nishmas, because unfortunately his, uh, his wife's uncle passed away. That would be one of the Teichmans, this would be a uh, brother of my good friend Rabbi H.V. Teichman in Baltimore. So I didn't even know about it because I was out of town yesterday. Sorry to hear that. And uh, I wish that family <clears throat> and the Hama and uh, Rabbi Cohen's wife is the daughter of Rabbi Teichman's brother, whom I do not know. Anyway, as I said before, let this be a Zechon Nishmas. Is it Simcha David? I think was the name uh, in there. And Simcha uh, Ben Moshe to Nisham Shen as we say. So I hope this will be a little bit of a zechus. Anyway, David C. Hoffman is a is a giant subject. He's the only guy I know of who you could say was a some kind of a gadol, but at the same time, genuinely, honestly, was a PhD. Usually, we have famous rabbis who are big in some area, not in the other. Usually, if they're good in English, not in Hebrew; good in English, Hebrew, not in English. Very rare that somebody's good in both. When I say good, I mean in the terms of their career. I mean, Rabbi Soloveitchik was a genius, but and he was into philosophy, but he wasn't one of the great philosophers. He could have been. It's not what he put his kochas into. He put his kochas in giving a sheer mayu. I'm just saying. Hoffman is the only one I can think of who is a gone, as far as I'm aware, at the same time in his chosen field, which I'll have to talk about. Um... <laughs> It, it, it was, as you would say, outstanding in the PhD department. Before I proceed, um, let me just say that I was speaking with my good friend Rabbi Morrow today. I am planning at this moment, I hope this will happen, to do a Israel trip on, on Thanksgiving time. You know, it takes a, I'm giving a, a fair notice beforehand. I'm going to start working and putting it together. <clears throat> if anybody's interested, in the details, you'll contact me. It'll be like, you know, the week of Thanksgiving, so usually we arrive in Israel the way I, I've done this a number of times. And obviously it's going to be a Jewish history trip, and also a Rabbi Marwi trip. Uh, and let me say that we're going to go, go on Sunday, it's going to be like from Sunday 
to Monday or something like that. So you would leave approximately on Sunday to 20th of November and come back something like Monday or so, the 28th of November. The week that Thanksgiving falls out to. If you're at all interested in that, you let me know. And we're fleshing out the details as we speak. I do hope I'll find sponsors for the Parshad Haftor this week. But we shall see. Now let's get down to business. As I said before, for those of you, I imagine many people, certainly not all, who listen to this podcast are familiar with the famous rabbi Dr. W.C. Hoffman. I imagine. But I don't think people know, you know, what he was into, other than the fact that he's from the period of Torm Derkers. He is more Torm Derkers or Torm Mata than all of them put together. You know, what they all, what the others all talked about, he did. Knows what Hirsch talks about. Hirsch wasn't really Torm Derkers. I know he talked about it. I understand it. But he wasn't, you know, I'll explain what I mean when I say that. Uh, and even Hildesheimer wasn't, but Hoffman was the real thing. But he was the only one of the kind. This is a very large parsha, and what I resolved to do, rather than get into one of my things where I'm going to go an hour, an hour and a half, I don't want to do that. It's not going to have in mind these podcasts. So I'm going to do Hoffman Part 1, Hoffman Part 2. That's my intention. So today, and I'm doing it for a reason, to call your attention to what I regard as a very interesting phenomenon, which is his upbringing, which I think is extremely interesting in many regards. So that's what I decided to turn today into a partial biography. And I hope in the future to return to the second half. I honestly do. So here we're talking about someone who, as I always was a great rabbi, let's put it that way, who lived in the 1800s primarily, 1843 and 1921. So, you know, think of those years. Um, 1820, 1920, died in 21. That was a time there was starvation in Germany after the First World Wars. We shall see. Okay? I know, usually, in the bios, they'll say Hoffman was born in a little town in Slovakia, Verbo, and then went here, went there, went there. And I'm kind of laughing when I see that. Because I do not think that most of the secular biographers, and even the front ones, are so familiar with the Hungarian background, Oberlander background, they're talking about over here. W.C. Hoffman, who'll be Mr. Yeki in the highest sense of the word. Let me repeat that. Mr. Yeki in the highest intellectual sense of the word. I'm serious. He's not really Yeki. He's from Hungary. But he's from Oberland. Oberland was the part of Hungary was Germanized. They were not Hasidic. In fact, where he came from, you had some people over there were super, that were more misnogged than Vilna Gaon, believe it or not. But uh, but it's a tiny phenomenon. So he's in Western Hungary. Uh, and not far from Nitro, you know, that kind of area. And how should I put this? <clears throat> people think it's like a hick town. Let me say this. Uh, Verbo was one of the biggest Malcolm Torahs around. Uh, I'm well aware when it comes to the history of certain things like uh, Oberland, things of that nature. Most people are not into this stuff. There was a place called the Kingdom of Hungary, which no longer exists. It was very large, much larger than Hungary today. I've mentioned it before. Um, you ended up having close to a million Jews there in the 1800s, 800,000. Um, culturally speaking, eventually turned into 50-50, 50% Orthodox, 50% not. Of the 50% Orthodox, it turned into two groups, the Unterland and Oberland. The Unterland would, for our purposes, it's called the eastern part of Hungary, and the Oberland would be the western part of Hungary. 
The Oberland, for the most part, did not go Hasidish. Dunderland, for the most part, did go Hasidish. Although there were exceptions in both places. Okay? There were some strong feelings on the subject. So we're talking about Hassam Soferville. That area, which was more in the influence of the Hassam Sofer. But here's my point. All you ever heard of was the Hassam Sofer, who indeed was a very important rabbi, no question about it, and had his very large yeshiva in Pressburg, no question about it. He was not the only game in town. He was not the only guy in the block. Not at all. In the time of Hassam Sofer, there were a number of other rabbinim who were charismatic, and in the same style were rabbis of communities, and also on the, on the side ran yeshivas, some small, some large. <clears throat> it's just that they didn't have mazel in getting into history books. The Chassam Sofer, for a whole bunch of reasons, had become very well-known, Orthodox conservative reform. You know, his Chodesh Asim and Atari, even though he didn't mean that, and his whole gang, it's just a very romantic one, you understand? Uh, in many respects, you know, his wife died, he'd be married at late age, so the whole thing very, very, has a romance to it. But there were other Rabbanim in his time who were his equal, if I can use that term, in terms of being big, gigantic Talmud Chachamim. And they had big yeshivas, not as big as his, but big yeshivas. And that phenomenon of Teufus yeshiva, as they call it, <coughs> which is not like in America where one guy, like near Israel, is an institution. Uh, Lakewood is an institution. But rather was run by the personality, strictly a personality of the leader of it, who happened to be the outbase of the town. That was very typical in Hungary. Okay? And so if somebody was a big rabbi and attracted a bunch of students, shine. If he moves to another town, usually the students would follow him. It usually meant the breakup of that particular Shiva. And then it depended if the next guy who came along also was able to build a Shiva. He would try almost all the time. Some were more successful ones, some were less successful. Yeshivas and things like that depends on your charisma, depends on whether you turn on or turn off, depends whether you're good uh, Mazbir, you know, you can be a Talmud Chacham not know how to put it over. I've seen that in my time. Uh, and uh, if you're good at raising the money, all kind of things like that. <clears throat> so this little, if I stuck in the town of Verbo, uh, was a big yeshiva. Thomas Hoffman was born in 1843. 40 years during his, when, how should I put it, a decade before he was born, there was a very famous rabbi that no one ever heard of, of Kabul Kharif. He was well known in the day. Um, and Alt uh, Kunstadt uh, is his name. And uh, he was enrolled there for 40 years in this little town. And he had a yeshiva of 150 guys, which is a lot. I mean, every year. And so, and Hoffman's father, I believe, learned there and became a die in, in the Kehillah. So it means he was Talmud Chacham. And Hoffman's born in 1843, but his father died when he was five years old. So the rest of his life, he's an orphan. He awesome. That, in my opinion, where I'm going with today, I'm playing Sigmund Freud. Today, the, the upbringing of a person tells you a lot about that person, in my opinion. <clears throat> That's my thesis today. You know, if I want to know who you are, things like that, chances are, if I know your background and where you went to school and who were your influences in your life and this and that and the other, I can see why you turned out the way you turned out. Not always. It's true. <clears throat> it's definitely true. Not always. You have what you call a Baal Shula. You know, that's true. You have the opposite of Chose B'Shela. No question about it. But Ruba de Ruba, I would say, you show me a guy who went to this place, this place, that place, and that place, had this kind of family situation, it will explain a lot about how they develop in the course of their lives. And my contention is that there's nowhere is this more true than in the case of W.C. Hoffman. As I see before, 
I don't know if he had siblings or not, but his father died when he was very young. His mother was left alone. And he had to fend for himself as an orphan, <coughs> Astro, which he's learned how to be a goody two-shoes. And either you become antisocial and this and that and the other, or you become <coughs> the opposite. And it so happens he was a big uh, Eloy, just happened to be. And so, um, I'll tell you right now, the best bio, there are a couple of good biographical essays. You know, this one supplies what that one doesn't and so forth. But most of them are intellectual. Uh, understandably. And Don't Be Humble was a shy guy. He had a shy personality. Which is interesting for somebody who taught thousands of students. But I know many people like that, teachers who are shy. You know, I know that. You know, if you approach them, they open up. But otherwise, they're not going to go to you. It's exactly who he was. Uh, and he had this uh, interesting, anyway, personality. <clears throat> His daughter ended up marrying, um, he had several children. He had a daughter who married Alexander Marks, who became the big professor and librarian at the Jewish Theological Seminary, the conservative in New York, from day one. And Solomon Schechter started the place. One of his first guys was Hoffman's son-in-law, Alexander Marks, who was there for 50 years, 5-0. And he actually built up the JTS library to be the famous place that it was. And Alexander Marks was, you know, one of these guys that has a foot in both camps, a half-Orthodox, half-conservative. That's who he was. And, uh, and he came from an interesting family. I remember he had a brother who was a leader of the Communist Party. Very typical. One becomes a Jewish professor, one a communist. And his sister married Agnon. <laughs> so whatever the case is, he, Alexander Marx, <clears throat> was a historian. Antiquarian, I should really say. And he has a book that I got many years ago. The Hebrew College used to give him away. It was published by the, so I'm recommending by the JPS when it was still alive. It's called Essays in Jewish Biography. In which different biographies that he, biographical essays that he published, just like in the 40s, 1947, I'm looking at mine, right? And he's got Rashi and um, Rambam, Sadigon. He's also got Solomon Schechter and people like that, you know, Max Margolis, those kind of guys. And he has W.C. Hoffman, who was his father-in-law. And because he married the daughter, he knew him kind of intimate. You know, he saw him, you know what I mean, away from the public. And it's, I've always found it very tender, very interesting the way he describes them from a family perspective. You understand? And I know Don C. Hoffman was a very modest person. He was a big tzaddik. When I say tzaddik, I mean balmidas. You know, some people take the meters seriously. And therefore, I don't think he told too much of himself. But in the family circle, he told. And so from uh, Marx, you learn that um, he was Eloy. He was, began to study the Chumash age of three, Rashi at four, and the Gemara at five. By the time he was ten, nobody in the town could teach him anything. They had to go looking for a Rebbe. Now that's extraordinary because before, when Kabul Kharf was alive, which was a few years before he died, he was called Kabul Kharf because he was, I'm trying to think how to put it over to this podcast. He was something, I don't want to overdo it, but let's say he was like a Chaim Brisk or a Baruch Bear of that Kufa. Even the Hassam Sofer is famous for saying, I don't want any guys from his yeshiva to come to Pressburg because they'll think my shiurim are a joke compared to his. That's what the Hassam Sofer says. And by the way, the Hassam Sofer is Masbidim, it's in the Drush of Hassam Sofer. You know, he's one of these gedolim that people have heard of. So, uh, in general, Verbal had some famous rabbis in the 1800s not everybody's familiar with. And that's part of the story. 
So here's a boy who's very good in learning. Father dies at five. They seize a Balkishan. He obviously had a nice personality. And he plugged away in the old-fashioned way of Limudi Kodesh alone. You know, Cheder and things like that. From, let's say, five to ten. Days of ten. Or twelve, to be perfectly honest. So that would put him in 1855. In 1855... They, they already had several replacement rabbis, including Rabir Mialef, who was like the villain of the gun, anti-Hasidic. He became later Uhai Rav. Oh, boy, my goodness, did he have fights. He wouldn't let the Hasidim come to Shul, you know, <laughs> or use the mikvah. Anyway, um, so uh, there was Shmuel Summer. It's not a name you heard of, but he became the Rav and Verbub. These are all Oberlandish guys, the Haino. They're very from... The learning is the Iker. They're big medoptic and mitzvahs. However, they weren't against Limunichol at all. You, you get what I'm saying? There didn't develop a principal attack on Limunichol even by the Chassam Sofer to tell you the truth. They did by the Hasidim and by one chalik of the Talmud, like you say, the extreme right wing of the students of Chassam Sofer. But not the others. So Chassam Sofer had a wide range of students I think he had 500 guys, 700 guys in each yeshiva each year. That's a belt of people. From that group, some were lefties, most were middle, and some were extreme right. Roe, we're not opposed to Limunichol, provided, of course, it's subordinate to the Limunich Kodesh and doesn't argue with the Limunich Kodesh. That goes without saying. I'm dealing with very from people over here. The Oberlin was big mouth of Torah, so keep that in mind. That's why he's interesting. So here he is, 12 years old. He's going to be bar mitzvah soon. He has no father. In, in, in those days, you'd be stuck alone, alone and helpless and friendless. <clears throat> because he had the good fortune to have an Elisha cup. So the Rav took him in. And anyway, his father used to be the Dayan. You know, that much protects he had. And this Rav, for four years, so that means from 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, uh, taught him Gemara, you know, and also arranged... They used to get tutors in Limunichol. That's interesting. I'll say it again. The Rav hired for him private teachers to teach him reading, writing, arithmetic, and beyond. So that's why So his secular education began at the age of 12. Side by side with Limunichol-ish. I don't know exactly how they did it, but you can understand. Torah was the main part. The Limunichol was the secondary part. But nevertheless, it was there. No day school existed. And that's how it went. In 1859, when he's, uh, I guess, 16 years old, so um, the Rav got very sick. He died not long afterwards. And so the our hero went to another place in the Oberlin, Marmashik. It was in Jurgen, you know, not far from Pressburg. Not Pressburg, but not far from Pressburg. I think you've heard of the Marmashik. At that particular phase of his career, the Marmashik was in his left-wing phase. Later, he moved to a right-wing phase. When I say left-wing phase, his left wing is like to the right of whatever, you know, <laughs> as a relative term. It's super to the right. But, again, those who know, know he was a Talmud. He was maybe the favorite Talmud of Chassam Sober. There are many stories about that. And, uh, obviously, he was a great gun. He was totally into Mendelssohn's Chumash. He learned perfect German. He used to give speeches in German. He knew his share of Limune Chol. So in other words, once again, you find this combination of our heroes growing up surrounded by people who on the one hand are Ge'onim, Gedolim, uh, 
Hasidim in, in, in the sense of their religious practice, and all this pious. And yet they're quite open to Lemunichol, always assuming, of course, that the Lemunichol doesn't compete with the Lemunichodesh. Okay? So here he is, 16 years old. Now he's 17 years old. 1859 to 1860. He's 17 years old. At that year, the, at that time, at the age of 17, so what do you do? In America, that's more or less finishing high school. So he goes to college. What's Shah College? He goes to the yeshiva of Hildesheimer in Eisenstadt. <clears throat> in other words, in the far end, by the Oberland, in the, you know, in the, in the Shevakilis over there, in the far end of Hungary, on the, uh, of the western end of Hungary, you had this unusual institution, which I did at great length, maybe too much, on Rav Hildesheimer, uh, who was a Yeki, was a real German, with a PhD, but was super duper from, but was convinced along the lines that I've been talking about this whole time now, this last few minutes, that now, that, that in general, it's an ideal perhaps to have Limudi Kosh plus Limudi Chol at a high level. Uh, that's what somebody needs today to be a from Jew to have the Limudi Chol as well, particularly if you're going to be a rabbi or something like that. And in his Yeshiva Nazishat, he had what we would call a college, the Hainum, a gymnasium in which you end up with a BA. I'm talking about a genuine BA by the government. You know, they send um, from the uh, from the education department inspectors <clears throat> and all the rest of it. So Rav Hildesheim was weird. On the one hand, he gave all the shiurim, especially the Hungarian style, shir pashat, shir iun, shir halacha, meaning bekias, iun, and uh, poskin. You know, today they call Mishnah Bura, you know, Shulchan Aruch. And uh, plus other things as well. So but that, that, by the way, is a full-time business. Give me a sheer, and, and give bechinas to everybody once or twice a week. It is a full-time job. In addition to that, he pretty much taught the whole English department. He taught Latin, French, Greek, mathematics, geometry, history, classics. I don't remember the whole list. It's nuts, okay? It's nuts. That's where our hero goes from the ages of 17 to 18, 18, 19, 19 to 20. So he does learn up a storm with him and became a Talmud Muvik of his. I'll say it again, a Talmud Muvik. So he, can't, he was only with him for three years. They must have really clicked. And when I say Talmud Muvik, I'm talking about in the Limited Kodesh department. Uh, and Hildesheim was a Kharif, you know, and uh, in the Hungarian style. And, you know, and, and basically, the, you know, you learn the Cedar Hashitos, as I, I think I've laid out here before. Uh, but then, if you get to a more advanced, like he was more advanced, so you you do more like the Siddur Hashidus in terms of more literature style. Why does the Riva disagree with the Balamor and so forth? Why, I say. So here we are now at the age of uh, 1863. So now he's 20 years old. Okay? So from the age of 12 on, he's had a very unusual kind of education. I think you would agree with that. From 12 to 14, he learned in this little town with the with the Rav, with the Murichov, and then he went but the Marmashiku also was like that, and then he went to Hildesheimer, who Marmash had a program. So from Hildesheimer, I don't know if he finished the whole BA to get his bachelor's. And the reason I say it is because um, in 1863, so when he's 20 years old, he goes to Pressburg. Why do you go to Pressburg? You ask me a question. Why do you go to Pressburg? I mean, you know, the Ksav Silver. What do you mean why you go to Pressburg? Ksav Silver. No. How's Hildesheimer worse than South Silver or Mount Shiki, these other guys? You go to Pressburg for college. Now, what I mean by that is you went to near Israel so you could get a college degree. 
That's what I'm talking about. Pressburg, and I think already by the time it was Sobsover, and certainly later, but already by Sobsover, was notorious, if you consider this a bad thing, that they have a policy of don't ask, don't tell. So you go to Yeshiva, you were expected to put in the full time in learning, in other words, the morning Seder, the afternoon Seder, and the night Seder, and so forth, and they did. If you can figure out some way that you can take some courses on the side, like a CLEP test and that sort of thing, you could actually get your BA that way. And that's what Hoffman did. He wasn't the first, he wasn't the last. There was a belt of guys. Now, I'm, gonna be, I'm not talking about phonies, fakers, you know, coffee drinkers, none of that stuff. I'm talking about people, like, you know, Breuer and all. They seriously were learning. They're seriously from, no question about that. I would even say very from and very into learning, but they want to get the degree. You can't get your PhD until first you get your BA, of course. Uh, in Germany, it means a, a, a gymnasium degree. <clears throat> and he, that means he went to the Protestant college, gymnasium, in Pressburg, and he got his BA in 1865. So that means he's, tw- he's 22 years old. Do you see the unusual career? It's not your typical guttural thing. Then, at the age of 22, he goes to Vienna. What's in Vienna? Garnished. There's a university here. So he starts taking courses for PhD University. Vienna, at the time he was there in 1860, was a hotbed for the Haskell. That's where gathered uh, what we call, and this had gigantic influence in it. That's where they gathered um, the famous masculine of the second wave of the Haskalah, what we call the Galician Haskalah. I hope to do a uh, series, by the way, I'm planning here in Baltimore to expand this Galicia thing that I did the other day into a five-part series. I'm actually looking for some sponsors, planning to do it the second week in June here in Baltimore near Tumut, eventually have it up online. Because I realized the whole Galicia story is a partial bite, but I don't want to get bogged down in that. Let me simply say that the Haskalah started in Germany with, with, with in the time of Moses Mendelssohn, but wasn't intellectually impressive. But the second wave of Haskalah was, if by that you mean historicism, meaning the rise of, modern, of what you call the study of Jewish history, what I'm doing at this moment, right? the discipline, the, the subject, the discipline of Jewish history really starts in the 1800s, and it starts in Germany and in Eastern Europe. In Germany, they did it through college. In other words, first they got the PhD in history, and then they applied it to Jewish stuff. That's called the Wissenschaft des Judentums. And in Eastern Europe, they called it the Haskalah. That means these guys knew the Jewish stuff from their own reading. After all, they went to Yeshiva, they knew how to read Hebrew. They happened to be interested in these kind of books, and they did historical research. And it all comes together in Central Europe, in Vienna, later in Budapest, uh, in the 1860s and 70s. Uh, and you had some very famous names that are totally forgotten today, who were the giants of the discipline of Jewish history. Uh, Gretz already was in, in Germany, and our hero is still in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Everything I talked about took place in the Kingdom of Hungary. Uh, now you're moving to Vienna, which was the capital of Austria. It's all one big empire. Uh, I assume you know that. If you're not, I'm not going to explain it. But uh, in Central Europe, in Moravia, Bohemia, in, 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 in Germany, I mean in Austria, you had people like Isaac Hirschweiss, who wrote the six, seven volume Dor Dor which was like considered the final word in the history of the Toshabal Pep. It's not from, it was condemned by the Yeshivas, but everybody read it. 
Uh, it's, it's well written, let's put it that way. Uh, oh, there were so many people like that. There were the guys who were starting to do the, the critical editions of the classical text, Mayor E. Shalom. Oh, there's a whole bunch of people you never heard of. Yelenek. There were there was famous names. And I want to say this. What these guys did was the glasses half full, glasses half empty. They were not from at all. Uh, a lot of them were, were, were uh, I would say in general, they were Kofrim. I would say in general. And also, they didn't, you know, they were not observant. There's exceptions, but, you know, not observant. And if they were observant, they were observant in their own weird way. This is this an unusual group. But they knew a lot, okay? And they did a lot towards laying the foundation for the modern critical study of Jewish history, including, as we shall see, this is something Hoffman gets into, the history of the Tanakh, because the Tanakh has a history, and the history of the Talmud, because the Talmud also has a history. It's easy for us to talk about it. What I mean by that is, there was a time in the, in the history of the world that the Torah didn't exist. Not in the Gashmi, it said. Right? Here we are getting ready for Shavuos. Before Shavuos, there was no modern Torah. Maybe the Torah was somewhere else, and I can't even use the word somewhere else because there's a different zone of dimension if you're going to get mystical. But the Torah, as we have it, happened at a certain time, but, you know, 30-some hundred years ago. Correct? Like somewhere in the time of 1200s BC or thereabouts. That's when the, the historical act that are given the Torah happened. Or didn't if you're not from, you know, but there's a history of the Torah. And similarly, there's a history of the Gemara. There was a time, as we all know, that the Mishnahis and the Gemara all saying didn't exist. Not in the form we have it. Okay? So, this one, this is the first time people start asking questions of a historical nature. Where did it come from? How did it start? Who wrote it? Who claims that they wrote it? What was their thing about it? How can you analyze it? Blah, blah, blah. These were things that never even entered the from discussion for a thousand, two thousand years beforehand. But now in the 19th century, they enter the area of discussion. And they're still with us today. You see? So the rise of the modern historicist sense dates from the 1800s. And these guys were the ones who were the main machers, main intellectuals, I would say, in the uh, historicist sense. Not in Eastern Europe so much at all. But in Vienna, Central Europe, very much so. So our hero, who's 22 years old and is from, but wants to get a PhD is now going to take a course in the University of Vienna. He's obviously hanging around with fellow Jewish students. As I understand it, he's probably only from me among them. Solomon Schechter, by the way, was one of those students who later started the conservative movement. You know, uh, it was a very, uh, it'll be a very interesting chabra. Uh, they used to claim he wasn't so from, I mean, I saw Schechter said, he wasn't so from back then. I think that's bogus, but you know, I know that's how people talk. They like to say this. And it was up to him. The guy was 22 years old <coughs> when he went to Vienna. So he figured you put in two years, three years, that's all it took in those days. And you end up with your PhD. So he did his coursework. And then, apparently, his mother all the time was somehow dependent on him, as you can imagine. And the nice goody two-shoes the boy that he was, because he clearly, clearly was a goody two-shoes. There's no question about it. That was his character. That's just his character. From the front point of view and from the human being point of view. He's a goody two-shoes. So, um, in order to... It says mother had, ran out of money. So, he had to leave college, so to speak. As we would say today, leave graduate school in the middle in order to get a job and send home a check to his mom. She lived back in the old country. That's when he went into Germany. That's when he crossed the border into Germany. 
Okay? If you know the map, Austria is up against Bavaria and southern Germany, and then what they call Württemberg, Stuttgart. Uh, so our hero ended up, without getting too technical, Hochberg, uh, in the Würzburg area, which means he now came, he made the acquaintance, they became part of the Hevra of the Würzburger Oath. So it's just like a forest company that Torah took sense. He was by the Marm Sheik, he's by the South Sofer, he's by Shmuel Summer, he was by the Hildesheimer. You know what I mean? He touched everybody. It's very interesting. That's why I say, just to talk about what happened to him, I'm not, not finished yet by any means. It's always the story. Now he's exposed to the Würzburger Rub, who was the last representative of the yeshivas in Germany. The yeshivas in Germany had kicked a bucket about 20, 30 years before. The reform did him in. That's what happened. There used to be the yeshiva in first, for example, which is near Würzburg, and there was a yeshiva in Würzburg. I should say. These are two Gekish yeshivas. They're not Litvish. They're not Hungarian. They're Gekish, going all the way back to the time of Balitosis. This is those three fat volumes, if you were interested in the subject, and it's a fascinating subject. Those three fat volumes by Rabbi Hamburger, who's Mr. Yeki. You know, uh, he really did a loving work on the Hayeshiva Rama first or something like that. And uh, it, these were famous places once upon a time. So I would say Rabbi Hamburger, the Birdsburg girl, is like the last great representative. So here, what I'm saying is like this. So our hero, W.C. Hoffman, he was exposed to the Ungarishaway, to the Sofer to the Presburg way of learning, to the Hildesheimer way of learning, <clears throat> and now to the Würzburger Rub way of learning. And naturally, the Würzburger Rub was a macar of him. I will tell you something. How many eligible bachelors were there? I'm, being, I'm not being funny. I'm serious. How many eligible bachelors were there? Let's see now. 201867. So he's uh, 24 years old, not married. A, a giant Talmud Chacham, a from guy. <clears throat> I mean, and a nice person, you know. Like I say, a Balmidas and all the rest of it. Where do you get a guy like this? So they all wanted to grab him. So the, the from family, uh, Rosenbaum, who I talked about before, this was Wexler. You know, the family contacted me afterwards. Uh, you look it up. I did a thing with Haile Wexler. Uh, so this big hush, very from family in the Wurzburg area. He married into, you know, they, 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 they put their claws in him. I don't blame them. And he married the daughter, um, which means, therefore, W.C. Hoffman is, is a relative of Moshe Levy, I know, is listening to this. Because he sent me a thing that he's from the Rosamount, also from Cell. This is all in Bavaria. Okay? Here you had a situation where very from, these are not the regular Yekis of Term Derkhards at all. They try to hold on to the old pre-modern Yekisha standard. It was very interesting. That's who he married. Now, um, as they say, he came there to teach in, in like a Jewish day school, I guess. Which is really a case of Zalkin Vein of whatever. Uh, in 1869, so that would make him 26. Uh, so what happened was his former Rebbe back a number of years ago, Hildesheimer, left Hungary and moved to Berlin. That's when the fights among the Jews, among the Orthodox, got extremely bitter. The Orthodox cussed each other out unbelievably. Hildesheimer was on the receiving end of a lot of the cussing out. He was not a cusser out That wasn't his nature. And therefore he said, the heck with Hungary. I'm going back to Germany. And he moved in 1869 to become the rabbi of the Frumschule in Berlin. By that time, he already had a, like, like Hirsch's thing, an Ostergemeinde, you know. De facto, 
I mean, it was part of the kilo because the law was that way. But really, it was like a breakaway shul for Frum. Okay? When I say Frum, I'm simply saying Frum Shomer Shabbos. That's all. I mean, that could be very modern. But not reform. The reform dominated the community. <clears throat> and so Hildesheim became the rabbi of that shul. And there still was, in Berlin, <clears throat> leftover from 200 years, a base madrash. No, it was what we call today yeshiva which was in very, very shvacha shape. And Hildesheimer became the robe of the Orthodox show, the Kehola, which he made from top to bottom. And then, or bottom up, I should say. And he gave Shurman that base medrash in that, in that shvacha yeshiva. You understand? Imagine like an MTJ type place, you know, now, now, today. So, that's at least if I understand. I mean, the last time was MTJ, it was empty. Anyway... So he called a number of his Talmudim to come, and they went with him anyway. He was very charismatic. And he said, let's try to build something over here. It took him four years till he raised the money and so forth. In four years, he started the Hildesheimer Rabbinical Seminary, which was a brand new parsha. But at the time I'm talking about, when our hero was 26, so he moved to Berlin to be with the Rebbe, and uh, he was just newly married. He um, must have given some kind of teaching role or whatever. But I don't think there was any money in it. They didn't have the money yet. So, in 18... He's either for two, for two years. I think one of the main reasons he moved there was the following. When he moved to Berlin, then he got his PhD finally. In 1870, December. So that means he's 27 years old. You gotta get your... You know, it's ridiculous to go to college and not get a degree. That's ridiculous. He certainly felt that way. So now... And I guess if he stayed in Würzburg, maybe they don't like it. I don't know, I'm guessing. What's fascinating to me is Germany had like 60, 70 universities. It used to be called the Land Universities. I don't know why. He did his doctorate, uh, which was easy to do in those days, in the University of Tübingen, all the way in Württemberg in the south of Germany, in a super Protestant area. Why am I mentioning this? And he went to a Protestant college back in, um, not a Catholic one, in Pressburg. So... His exposure to Lemuri Hall was generally under Protestant teachers and professors. Why am I mentioning this? The Protestants at that time were the ones that were gigantic into Bible criticism. This is exactly when they developed the whole discipline. Which means you look at the scriptures, I'm talking about the Old Testament now, and dispassionately, you don't start with the Hanukkah that God wrote it. You say, suppose somebody wrote it. What would, it, what would I analyze it from its own? So for example, suppose it says sometimes the word Elohim. I'm giving you a uh, a very superficial example, uh, a lesson in Bible criticism. So it says here Elohim, and somewhere else it says Hashem, and somewhere else it says uh, Shaddai, something like that. Oh, so why would you change the name of God? Elamai, this was written by people who believe in a God called Elohim. This one was written by other people who believe God called Shaddai. This one was by people called Hashem. That's it's simple. You know, now Sam Strayville Hurst said right away, if I told you that the same guy wrote the whole thing, then you'd ask different questions. You'd say, why does sometimes he call himself this and sometimes he call himself that? That would be like me. Right? If I'm writing to you, I say, I might sign my letter David. If I'm writing in college, I'll sign my letter David. If I'm writing to a friend of mine, I might say Dave. If I'm writing to a good friend of mine, I might say weirdo. You know, I don't know. Get it? You'd ask different questions because we all write in different tones in different ways under different stimuli and under different circumstances. But all I can tell you is, 
that the time that Hoffman went to uh, University in Tübingen and these other places, the science, as they called it, of Bible criticism and dissecting the Bible was in full swing. And this is what they taught all the professors. So he went through, let's put it this way, he went through all the fear <laughs> from top to bottom. The thing with Hoffman is he's the only guy probably that I can think of like Rabbi Kibbutz Bishom Yotz Bishom. Usually everybody else was, you know, wounded along the way. This is why the Frum didn't like it. You know, this one was hated Svenifka. This one became like Acher. And this one became like, you know, went crazy. Blah, blah, blah. Hoffman was a rare kind. He went through all this stuff. All this stuff. And didn't phase him. You get it? I'm sure people couldn't understand him. In fact, I know that. But that's who he was. There are people like that. It's very interesting, you know. Do you know Velton? This is this, this side be from. I, my opinion has to do with your personality more than the intellect, but that's my opinion. Anyway, uh, and that's where he did it. And now in Germany, by the way, they had a whole system. This was very popular in those days, maybe today, but I know at that time, which is, I'll use American terminology. I study in Hopkins, and then I also take some courses in Harvard, but I end up getting my doctorate from Chicago. What does that mean? The actual, I find a guy in the University of Chicago to run my dissertation, and he knows I took all my other courses in Hopkins and in uh, Penn and in Columbia, <laughs> you know? You, you don't get your PhD in the place you took your coursework. It's a little strange, but that's the way they used to do it. And so he had taken a belt of coursework in other places. Now he wrote his dissertation, which is a biography of Shmuel, Robin Shmuel. This itself was kind of controversial. In fact, it's very famous. It's called Mar Shmuel, the rector, like you say today, the dean of the rabbinical seminary of Nardea. It's a Protestant seminary. You can't explain to them Rosh Hashim, but they just don't even get that word. Get it? So if you say he was the dean of a seminary, okay, I remember long, long, long ago before my time, Professor Albright, you say, oh, I like Rabbi Ruderman. He's the dean of men at the nearest rabbinical college. You know, that's, that's how, <laughs> you know, that's how you translate into Gaish. So he finally got his doctorate when he's 27 years old. But what did he do for a living? Um... So the following year, he went to, um, what do you call it? He went to, uh, 1871, 17. He went to uh, Hirsch, Sans Day School, taught in high school. So that means he's uh, late 20s. Hirsch took this guy, 27, from, he just got his doctorate. And he knows how to learn because he was in the yeshivas. And so he was taught in high school. This is the famous story that Hoffman writes about in the Shalos and Shubas, which is quoted endlessly, where he taught in Hershey's school, and in Hershey's school, half the day was Lemude Kodesh, somehow or other, and the other half was Lemude Kol. Actually, by this time, the German government was forcing Hirsch. Instead of 50-50, they went on a relentless pressure to cut it down to 60-40, 70-30. In other words, in favor of Lemude Kol over Lemude Kodesh. And I know in the very end, I read somewhere that they made a 90-10. You see? Uh, not during Hirsch's lifetime, but that's what... But whatever the case was, when you did the Limuri Chol, uh, you took off your yarmulke. In other words, then it looked like a public school. Now, it wasn't. It was an Orthodox school, and all the kids were Orthodox. The teachers usually were going. But, you know, it's like a day school in America today. But just as in a regular public school for the Limuri Chol, you take your 
the hat off, you sit Gilaroish. So that's what they did in Hershey School. And they only changed that. It's funny. Not long ago, I uh, got this uh, big fat thing, Mesha Chachma, translated by uh, Munk, Elio Munk or something like that. I think I told you about that. It was kind of a little cutesy, weirdy. And the, but I was more interested in his autobiographical section. And this person, Mr. Monk, Rabbi Monk, he was in her school, I think, in the 30s. And he remembers in the 30s, they made the changeover to wearing yarmulkes in the Lemurichol period. You get it? Until the 30s, they still had the other system. So Hoffman was a yeshiva guy by background. Although, I'm 100% sure when he went to university, he didn't wear no yarmulke. I mean, that's how it went, you know. I mean, that's what it was. But whatever the case is, this was a Jewish school. And so he writes in the, um, what do you call it? In the, uh, here, I'll let me get it. Hi, here we go. I just had that Michamarv. Um, I think I'm picking off about the Yamaka. Very famous. The Hoffman wrote later in the Malam of the Hall. He has a shal, he has all interesting shalas. If you have to go to court and testify, can you take your hat off? It'll be Gilly Rush. And, you know, and he says, I don't have a lot of time to go into this because he was always so busy. And he gives a bunch of sources and so forth and so on. In other words, not whether you should, but it's required. And he named Bakaki Rand of Faftam, Beis and Nisyasim, Megon, Shemshim, Evil Hirsch, in the Sin. In the in the Hirsch, uh, uh, day school, I used to be a teacher there two and a half years. That's what I told you. That he taught there at a certain point in his life, when he was late twenties. During the English or secular part of the day, they took their yarmulkes off, which is a little bit strange by our standards. But okay, Germany's different. And for the Hebrew studies, the Moody Kodesh, they put their yarmulkes or hats on. And same thing goes to the big day school in Hamburg. The two big day schools, especially high schools, in Germany, there was only a very small number. It was in Frankfurt, Hirsch's two schools, and uh, the Hirsch community two schools, I should say, and the one in Hamburg, the Talmud Torah uh, school. Uh, where in, in Berlin, they didn't have a, a high school. Not too much later. Anyhow, um, so this policy of taking hats off, putting hats on, uh, uh, you know, in, in Limudi Kodesh and Gila Rosh, as a school policy, is from Hirsch. Right? And the first time I came to visit Hirsch in his house, right? So I walked in with my hat on as he visited him at home. The from, I don't have to tell you, the from way of being um, respectful is, you know, to put, put a hat on. But a Western person, when you come, you take a hat off as a sign of respect. And Hirsch must have figured this guy's a Vildechaya, you know, from Hungary, done no manners. And Pomerish of all the boys of Hirsch, Hayekova Roshi, I had my hat on. Armly Shekan, who dare Chetz Lhasser, I come me al Rosh. That here, when you come to Adam Chashev, Hirsch was, after all, the Rav in Frankfurt. So you take your hat off as a sign of respect. Because um, he said, if 
you treat me, Hirsch said, if you treat me in a manner that seems disrespectful, especially to the Goyim, right? Then one of the teachers in the school, who's a guy, because there are a lot of Goshen teachers, if they saw when I walk in, and I don't take my hat off for the principal, but they call her the director. Hirsch was the principal of his own school. They'll consider this as I'm treating with a sign of disrespect. And Hirsch said, This is not a din of Bechuk Hussein, Melissa Lecho. This doesn't fall into that category. Mean came Benini Don, so the same thing goes on to talk about. So it's a very famous incident, which is sometimes misinterpreted, but nevertheless, there's there. So this is what I mean when I said that for two years after he got his doctorate, he was teaching, I'm sure, in the high school. Uh, I don't think this story itself gives you a little indication and get along so well. Because uh, Hirsch was coming from completely different, both are very from, of course, both very. Big people, but in different ways. And um, I don't think he felt so comfortable there, as we shall see. And finally, when he was 30 years old, 1873, Tehildesheimer told him, guess what, I'm starting a brand new thing that's never been done before called rabbinical seminary. It's a new experiment. Uh, We're doing it to fight the conservative reform. It's going to be, you know, you know what the seminary is. I already explained it when I did the old seminary. Uh, the college you do at university, but limited coach you do in the seminary, which is not far away. And I want you to be the other Gemara teacher. So basically, the two important shiurim for the limited coach department is uh, the what do you call the upper shear and the lower shear. So hold the time and say, I'll take the upper shear to more advanced students, and you take the lower shear, less advanced students. But remember, these are people who've already finished gymnasium. So, in other words, they're serious adults. And you can therefore have a job, as we would say today, as a market share with a full salary. And boy, did he grab that. And then he finally reached the top of the greasy pole. Because from then on, Hoffman was doing something he wanted to do. He spent the rest of his life, the next 50 years, or 48 years, until <clears throat> he died, giving Shuren and writing and doing research. <clears throat> Because seminary was as follows. The Orthodox Rabbinical Seminary. College or university, as we say today, was in the after classes in Berlin in the afternoon. So the Limude Kodesh courses were in the morning, but that means you have to pack everything in the morning. So they would, you know, have something along the lines of a Nate's Minion, whatever. Early chakras. Quick breakfast. 7.30 start the classes. So Hildesheimer for the upper class and Hoffman for the lower class. Each one gave from 7.30 to 9.30 a Gamar share, two hours every day. Then from 9.30 to 10.30 approximately was, or, you know, maybe it's a little break or something, but basically 9.30, 10.30 figure was Halacha uh, Shulchanarch, Nosekalem. And then Hoffman from 10.30 to, you know, 12 or whatever it was, used to usually give a class in Tanakh. This is where his famous books come from. Particularly the Chumash, 
with an emphasis on, on the getting the shot right and then fighting the Bible criticism. This is the source of what he did. So basically, by the time you get to 12, I don't know, 12, 30, whatever, something like that, you're done. Get it? Because then the boys all go up to college. Uh, it's not like near Israel where you learn till 6 and then they went to college. There you learn till like 12. Then you go to college. Dave, college is finished. You know, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, something like that. And those who wanted to could come back and they might have extra, what I would call today, voluntary shurub. And Hoffman liked to, and he gave a fair number of those. But this was the heart of his schedule. So what do you do for the rest of the day? He, um, he had promised his father-in-law when he got married, they would learn every day in the Gemara. And, you know, a guy like him took these things very seriously, a promise. And so, when he came, when he moved to Berlin to teach in the seminary, he also took a shtella to be a rabbi in a small shul. So, in other words, Hildesheimer was the rov of the Adasis Rov Synagogue. That was the big shul. The main shul of the Frum community. The breakaway community, so to speak, that upheld orthodoxy as opposed to the reform and all the rest of that, the liberals. And Hildesheimer was a dynamic, you know, guy. Hoffman had a smaller show, like Stiebel, I guess you'd call it, Chloe's, uh, called Kevershaus. And the name itself tells you that this was a show in which there's a, a daily blot. Okay? It's not exactly Dafyomi, but you definitely cover ground in one of those things. So he was in a show in which his situation was to give daily shear. So early afternoon, I think if I remember correctly, he gave a shear there. And that was, you know, his day. So, no, let me put it this way. That's a heavy schedule, I just said. Me, myself, and I, I teach this year 10.30 to, let's say, almost 3 o'clock. So that's a good four and a half, five hours. Uh, four and a half hours. More, actually. Uh, but two days a week. He did this every single day. And starting and his hours were early in the morning, starting the day at seven thirty. Thus Alain is a crazy teaching schedule. And if it's the Hildesheimer Seminary, like in Hungary, one or day, two days a week they give Bechinas, you know, oral Bechinas, that was part of it. So uh it's just interesting. The rest of the time he put into his uh Mechkar, his research and study. This is what makes him different <clears throat> than the other Gedolim, so to speak. <clears throat> because he didn't sit down writing Kedushim on Shas, although he easily could have. He easily could have. He went through the Yeshivas, knew how to learn. He was up there with some of the biggies, Ksav Sofer, Marmashik, and so forth. But that's not what he put his efforts into. Instead, he put the bulk of his, bulk of, bulk of his efforts into Mechkar, according to the 19th century what was called the science of Judaism, and um, the academic study of Judaism, which is something that interests him a lot. And his particular regard, he's unique. Now, side by side with all the stuff that he wrote in the area of what we would call Jewish history, and here's, you know, philology, literary history, the nitty-gritties of the Torah Shabbat Peh, which I'll talk about another time. But he also gave every day, like I say, the Blatshir, in Shul, and an Iun Shir, an Ian Shir, in the seminary. And I know he also gave, you know, what shall I say, 
private, uh, uh, what's the right word? Not on the curriculum. Extra classes for those who wanted them at night in Jewish history. And I don't know, this subject, that, because he knew everything, you know? He knew about. And this is how he spent the rest of his life. So, in other words, after going from pillar to post and from place to place, he found, and, and, and not being in a place like a, you know, high school teacher in the Hearst School where he clearly felt culturally uncomfortable. He found a place where he's totally comfortable because the whole Zimmer Seminary is for people who already went through college, now into graduate school level. The Rosh Hashiva was his idol. He worshipped. He was totally loyal to Rav Hildesheimer, understandably so, aside from his great character and his sickness and all the rest of it. I mean, Hildesheimer was the real thing. I talked about that when I did him. But aside from all that, you know, he he was a... Uh, I mean, he saved him from oblivion. He saved him from, you know, being an obscure teacher in some little place or what else. Took him to the top of the front world. And... He continued this position until Hildesheimer retired. In the last decade, I think he, uh, I think he went to stickle uh, Sina a little bit, and so he couldn't teach anymore. Hildesheimer, Rev. Hildesheimer, his Hoffman took the high shear, and from then on, you know, like from the eighteen nineties, whatever. But then on, he taught the high shear for like uh, twenty five years, you know, from the mid nineties till his death. Uh, he also was on the base then, and eventually the Roche base then, of the Kehillahs base then. In other words, Hildesheim, besides the seminary, also had the shul, which was really Kehillah. Think of the Hirsch Kehillah, like the Breuer's Kehillah, being in a self-contained entity with its own base then, and its own kashra, and its, its own this, its own that. So now, and, and then take it to Germany even more so. So we're all familiar, very, many people are familiar with the Hirsch, Kehillah, but in Berlin they had the same thing. Uh, they didn't have a day school of high school like Hirsch had, but they had their stuff. So that means you're poskening shilas all the time in terms of running a basin. I'll try to explain next time that in addition to all this, he was the go-to guy that they all sent their shilas to, especially after Hildesheimer got a little bit older, more frail, so you send all your questions to Hoffman. So you're giving a shear so and so many hours every day. You're giving a, a, a block shear every day in the shoal. You're giving sometimes a whole bunch of extra classes at night. You're giving specific lectures and then writing up article after article after article in the Wissenschaft des Judentums, in the, in, in the history, of the literary history of Tershavik Sabatoshavapair. Which in remarkable ways. Uh, you're also undertaking to be the one man show who can fight against all the Geisha charges against Judaism because the Yekis didn't know what to say. He was the only guy with a really big Talmud who was able to answer. I think he wrote 600 articles, something like that. It's crazy. You know, every time some anti Semite writes something in the paper, if the Jews have to give a response, it's Hoffman. You understand? It's Hoffman. So uh, it's an unbelievably heavy load. You gotta love it to do this. That's the type of guy he was. You gotta like it to do this. You see? So 
as I said, I'm sure I've taken up a lot of time just with this. Uh, as you see, this is not your typical good old path. Um, it did include a bunch of yeshivas, but it also included a lot of stuff as well. It did. Now, early in his career, he had a run-in with Sam Samuel Hirsch over the question of being gorous altogether Limudi Kosh versus these, uh, excuse me, reformer conservative and other historians. Hirsch's policy was low Garcinon. Hoffman's policy was not like that at all. But that's a complex question. And uh, it's with us down till today. And it's something that deserves a, a, a separate talk on its own, not just as a second half or something of a long piece I've already started. So let me conclude. This is what I mean when I say I want to do Hoffman part one. Because I think the story of his career and how he got to where he is, is most unusual. And uh, I'll just conclude by saying that he, the son-in-law describes him as being a very shy person, but if anybody would ever approach him, he would be the opposite of shy. You understand? Uh, he's a very modest person. He was not a citizen of Germany, so he always felt that chip on the shoulder. He'd been born in Hungary, in the Kingdom of Hungary, which is part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He lived from 1873 to 1921 in Berlin. The German government was such a bunch of schmoes, they never would give him a citizenship. Even though he's here year after year, the guy obviously pays his taxes and is law-abiding. You know what I mean? wasn't a question of loyalty. The Germans, even in the best of times under the Kaiser, they like to stuck a little bit. You get it? They like to do that little, you know, anal anti-Semitism kind of business. And he suffered a lot from that. He shouldn't have, but he did. And there you have it. The rest of Hoffman is more, I would say, in the area of intellectual history. And sometime I'll devote a time to talk about that, because that's its own parsha. So, with this, I conclude by saying once again, I want to thank Reverend Miss Elias for coming from Lakewood. I'm sorry to hear about the loss of her uncle and the brother of my friend, Rabbi Teichman. As I said before, opening the show, we'll have a Leo. Uh, and with that, I wish everybody a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.